I'm John Hupalo of Invite Education, and welcome to My College Corner. You know, one of the great challenges for Invite Education is working to address the disparity of resources that are available to students of means and those students who are disadvantaged. We've been trying to support charitable foundations and some really terrific grassroots organizations that identify some really motivated students, often as early as middle school, and provide a wonderful support system to make their dreams of college a reality. Hopefully you heard my talk earlier this year with Bob Hildreth. Bob's the founder of Inversant, and he told us about his mission to help low-income, underserved families save for college. Well, this week, we're so grateful to have another person who's dedicated her career to empower underserved families and children with what they'll need to achieve their dream of college. Today, she serves as the Executive Director of the National Partnership for Educational Access, NPA. Previously, she served as the Executive Director of the Summer Bridge Cambridge, a summer academic enrichment program. She created and directed the Training and Technical Assistance Department of Horizons for Homeless Children, and she also spent several years working for the Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services on a variety of education and social service initiatives. So I'm really excited today to welcome this today's guest in my college corner, Corrine Elliott. Corrine, welcome. John, thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's a lot of fun to see you and to have an opportunity to chat with your audience. Well, I'll tell you, Karine, it's really great to have you here today. You know, to cut right to the chase, the reality for us to be successful, when I say us, I mean organizations like Invite Education, NPA, the way we differentiate ourselves is that we have to answer to the outsiders, if you will, those who are looking in, three critically important questions in very simple terms. And those questions who are we, what do we do, and, and why do we matter? So let's start there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about National Partnership for Educational Access and what you do, how you got started? Absolutely, yes, it's great. So NPEA, National Partnership for Educational Access, um, at our core we're a membership association, but you know it's so much more than that. Um, we work with schools and programs from all across the country who are committed to and make it their life's work to support underserved students who are struggling on the path to college and beyond. And we really started out of an identified need in the field for programs and schools to come together to do this work and share ideas, share best practices, network, you know, sort of obviously it's cliche to say, you know, don't want to reinvent the wheel, but our members really don't want to reinvent the wheel. They, they really do want to come together and partner and collaborate. And um, so that's kind of how we got started. We've been around for 10 years, so we've been doing this for um, a fairly long time now, but still, you know, learning new things every day. And, you know, our, um, our core is that we really try to connect to people, practices, and innovations that will kind of help eliminate those challenging barriers to, to student success across the country. So it's our 100% commitment to that. Now, 100% is the right way. I'm so impressed every time I meet with you, your staff, the MPA members go to the conferences. There's dedication, um, like at a level you just don't really see. So in that 10 short year period, you've been able to make NPA matter for these member organizations. What, what do you think the key to your success to that has been? So, you know, I've been uh, thinking about this a lot lately um, with everything that's going on in the country and, you know, how how we can continue to to matter in this field. And I think for us, it's been all about relationship building. You know, we have spent 10 years building trust with our members. 
and encouraging our members to trust and be willing to open up to each other and share what they do. So essentially breaking down silos, you know, breaking down the barriers that can come up between programs that are doing this similar kind of work because all across the country, country people are. And so we've really spent a lot of time um, on that relationship building and that trust and that has allowed us over the years to get to know our members really well, to make sure that we're providing them with the kinds of services that they need and really best meeting their needs. Um, to give you a sense of, of you know the numbers I'm talking about, we have about 350 members across the country and um, they are serving well over half a million if not more students who are those underserved students falling in the buckets of sort of lower income, students of color, um, first generation college going students. And we have probably about 1,500 education professionals in our network who get our information, connect with each other, talk to each other, and we just continue to try to cultivate that as, as much as we can. And it's all about coming together with them and you know, not always face-to-face. -face. Um, we do a conference every year. John, I know you've been to it and have presented at it. Um, but certainly, you know, whatever we can do, whether it's virtual or face-to-face, or -face, it's really about relationships. Yeah, relationships, I, I say all the time, this is really a people business for everyone and mm -hmm. the dedication that you've had in your career. And, and frankly, what, what everyone's trying to do makes you look to the future. And you, you talked a little bit about that. What, when you look out in the next three years, what's the single greatest challenge that's facing MPAA and your member organizations? So if, if you'd asked me this question three days ago, <laughs> I would have a completely different response. I'm going to have sort of a two-part response. And, you know, one is, is sort of an everyday challenge, which is um, all about financial aid and how to, to fund and afford college. Um, a lot of our members are serving students who are in the middle school and high school years, and so it's really trying to get them on that path. And, you know, understanding financial aid, trying to figure out how it works, everything that's involved with that. I know you know better than anyone, John, you know, about that with the work that you've done. And so that's a huge challenge, and I think it will just continue to be a challenge for our members, trying to figure out with help from us and from others in the field how to do that. Um, that being said, for the next, you know, upcoming years, um, as, as we both know, um, there was a ruling yesterday about rescinding DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and a lot of the students that are being served by many of our member programs are um, sort of students who fall into the bucket of DACA. And so that's going to continue, obviously, to be a challenge for our members. You know, the landscape, what's going on politically, it will be a challenge going forward. Yeah, no, no question, and, and uh, it didn't take us long to get on this DACA question because it is so critical. But well, it, there are eight hundred thousand or more kids who are involved with this, and there are lots of misperceptions about what what they are and who they are and what they do and the resources they take. And you know, you know better uh, than most, and I've heard it at your conferences for the last two years around the breakfast table that the undocumented kids, the dreamers, as they're known. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that, that really need some help. And, you know, they're not eligible for financial, federal financial student aid. Some of them get state aid. But I, I just, and I, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to know just from your gut, um, how do you think this is going to work out? So, you know, obviously it's a heartbreaking um, thing that's happened. I think for me personally, I, I have seen a lot of support just in the last you know day since this came out from people who are with universities they are with um, secondary schools post-secondary schools communities coming out and saying that they are there to support dreamers and so you know sort of legislatively I have no idea how this is going to turn out but I do I do see people coming together and I think that's something that 
will help make a difference. Um, you know, we work, NPA works as best we can to get information. You know, I don't know, I, I can't tell, I don't have, you know, sort of fortune telling abilities, but we are trying to get as many resources as quickly as possible. In fact, we're going to be sending out an email this morning to our members with resources that, you know, as soon as we learn about resources and we feel like they're reputable, we send them on out to folks. So um, I, th I think we're going to see a lot of people coming together to support as, as best they can. Yeah, I, I don't have a crystal ball either, but I do know one thing. Uh, I feel really good that you and MPA and others are, are going to get on this and figure out the right answer to help those dreamers because um, one thing that really became so apparent to me when I was at the conferences and talking to your members is that you know every kid has a dream about college and the underserved and the DACA kids are, have to have two big dreams right, in the way I think about it. They want to try to get to college, but they're also fighting a system that they really don't understand. So um, I, I do feel heartened that there are organizations like yours, but as you say, it's heartbreaking to see that those kids are going through that stress, uh, the added stress of not knowing what's really going to happen for them. Right, right, absolutely, yep. Well, let me ask you about this, Corrine. Uh, you uh, at MPA and, and we at Invite Education, I think oftentimes we have two customers and, and it's coming to the forefront in this DACA conversation. We have the families and then we have the organizations. So in many ways, um, you're a conduit uh, to your members. Um, can you tell us maybe some of the best, how you think about that from a best practices perspective, not only how you help your members, but how you help your members help their customers, the end user, their clients. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, we, you know, it is interesting in the work that we do since, you know, we directly uh, support and serve the professionals, the educators, if you will, who are, who are working with students, you know, we're, we're a step removed, but yet we're also sort of in it every day um, in terms of, of, of thinking about the students and, and really looking for their, their success. I mean, that's our end goal is that we put the students first, but the way that we can do that is by really helping to educate the professionals. And so one of the things is, as you alluded to, you know, we spent a lot of time on best practice sharing and just trying to help our members understand, um, you know, what it is that they can do, you know, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. And I think, um, you know, some of the best practices that we try to impart to the members are, you know, around things like the earlier that you can start talking about college with your students, the better, you know, and I said that we have a lot of members who are serving middle school and high school students. We also have members who are serving elementary school students, you know, and that's not actually too start too early to start, as you know, from, you know, sort of how you outline your book and the chapters in your book. So, you know, we really impart to our members that they need to be starting as early as possible, thinking about how they're going to help students understand college readiness. And, you know, for older students, it might turn into learning about financial aid. Younger students, it's, you know, hey, there's posters up in the hallway of all the different colleges out there. You know, things, things like that that are age appropriate, but that are all really, really important. And so we try to, you know, get that information out to the members. Um, you know, we also spend a lot of time talking about things like mentoring students, you know, whether it's an adult mentor or maybe it's a peer-to-peer -peer mentor. It's a college student who's mentoring um, a middle school student or a high school student. So there's different ways to kind of think about mentoring opportunities. Um, that, that's really important. And, and one of the biggest things that, you know, we feel that we can impart to, to our members um, is thinking about a college-going culture, you know. So there's a, we talk about culture a lot. You know, there's college-going culture. For us, we have a data culture, and I know we want to talk about some data today. But there's a college-going culture mindset, and we really – want our members to get that mindset and then think about it and, and really everything that they're doing is geared towards college going mindset. And, and that's, we found incredible success with that with our members. 
Yeah, and that absolutely seems to be a theme. Get the family involved, get the college uh, mentality, that college-going culture embedded into all that's going on, not only the school, but all the support. And uh, that's just absolutely huge. And I guess the, the reality is that um, a lot of these organizations that you're dealing with are on shoestring budgets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have this sort of chicken and the egg now uh, that, that's kind of going on where you want to see outcomes and, and folks want to see data of how successful these programs are. And so they're, they're stuck because they want to spend money on the kids, but then they're being asked to spend money on data and uh, technology. How do you see your role in, in all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we hear, we hear that from our members all the time, John. And, you know, we, we have a wide range of members. Some have really large budgets, but I'd say the majority of them have pretty small budgets. So you get the executive director who's the program the director, the development director, the data person, the technology person all in one, you know. <laughs> so there's not enough hours in the day to do that job. So, you know, so we try to help certainly on the data front um, with our members. And it is all about accountability now, you know, more so than ever. You know, funders want to know if it's working, if you can't show them the data to show that something's working, it's, you know, your, your word is not going to be good enough. And, and so a lot of these programs struggle with, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? What do I collect? How do I analyze it? You know, how can I use this information to, to, you know, help me get the funding and then help me serve the students? Because, you know, as you said, you want to spend a lot of the money on the students, but you actually have to understand how it is that you're helping them. So we had members come to us, you know, over the course of several years asking for assistance in this area. And we've finally been able to, you know, sort of put together a, a pretty, I think, um, at this point, successful project around data. And that's giving them a leg up. You know, it's still some work, but it's putting, it's, it's really helping to build a foundation for a lot of our members and set them up in a way that they, you know, can get at that important data and, and information without um, sort of, you know, without it being such an incredible burden. So that's our, our goal, um, you know, with some of this work is to take the burden off their shoulders. And I'm, I'm sure they appreciate that, not just from the data collection, but also um, sharing best practices and, and having the chance to say, okay, this is working in one part of the country, you can try it here, and then aggregating that data and showing your performance against the aggregated data. Um, you were good enough to share some of that, and one of the pieces that jumped out at me was just the FAFSA indicator. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, because yeah. you know, I saw data like, a few years back that said that almost a million and a half high school students actually didn't file their FAFSA form, and FAFSA, of course, a federal application for free student aid, uh, because they, they thought they either weren't going to get it, and about half of those, um, some of the analysis showed so half of those students actually would have been eligible for aid. So they were just leaving the money on the table. Uh, talk to us about what, what you found in, with your guys. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. And just to, you know, just for your listeners, just a kind of quick context is, is, you know, one of the things that we do every year now is we um, gather data from our members through a data tool and we ask them to report on some very specific key indicators of success for students. And there's 10 of them that we sort of identified over the course of time as being really, really critical. So, if, you know, if you want to know whether or not your students are doing well and how, you know, what their outcomes are going to be, you, you need to be looking at these 10 things. And you could certainly do and look at others as well, but really looking at these 10 indicators is, is key. And so um, one of the things that we ask about is whether or not um, the students that are being served by our member programs are completing the FAFSA on time. And so that's the key piece of this because, you know, as you said, 
um, students aren't filling it out, money just sits there. And, you know, there is financial aid, there is federal money for this, but if students aren't completing the FAFSA on time, then the money bucket is smaller. And, and not only just on time, and we don't, we don't ask the question about how early are they doing it, but the earlier the better, because the earlier you do it, the better the chance of having sort of a, a more substantive um, financial aid package. And so what we found with our members who were able to answer this question, they're working with um, students of this age, and that over 99% of the students being served by our members are completing the FAFSA on time. And that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think there's been a push certainly by us and by others in the field. We don't do this alone over the, uh, the, the past few years, and certainly probably since you saw that statistic, um, because it's so damaging, for um, a lot of you know, FAFSA campaigns, FAFSA information campaigns. And so we've certainly done that with our members by giving them information, specific information about deadlines and due dates and what it takes to fill it out. Um, and so you know, this is, we've done two years of this data collection. In both years, we've seen that high of a rate. Um, and so we know that it's, you know, for what you can say for two years of data, but it's consistent and we're, you know, we're going to work with our members to keep it that way. But it's a very important indicator. Yeah, and as, as you said, and, and I'm sure all of our listeners know that the FAFSA is available on October 1 now, so you can get a little bit of a jump start on that. Uh, and the, the really important point here, though, is starting early because there there is um, a bucket and it's full at the beginning and it's empty at the end. And you want to be there earlier so you can get some money. Yes, yes. The two other just key things to, that go along with that, and I think it's sort of, you know, a package of, of what has to happen for these students is they need to fill out the FAFSA. They also need to be, you know, um, applying um, to at least one post-secondary post school. And we saw that, you know, a good chunk, over 99% of our members' students are doing that, and also taking the college entry exam. And those are sort of the trifecta. You know, you need to do all those three things, you know, and then you can be on your way. And so those are areas where our members are also showing strength. Yeah, that, that is really terrific. And then how about on the, do you have data collection on the outcome of the degree attainment, how your um, member organization students are doing on, on the important part, which is having the dream and then fulfilling it? Yeah, absolutely. No, we definitely, that's, that's a critical one as well, degree attainment. Um, you know, and the way that we ask the question um, is that we ask our members who are working with that age group to look back um, in time over the past six years. So if they were working with a senior in high school six years ago, you know, do you still have data on that student? And can you tell us whether or not they've graduated within four or six years from college? And so we, the, the cohort for this was about, I'd say 922 students or so. Mm -hmm. um, and we learned that 74% of the students were completing and getting their degree within four or six years. So for us, that's a really great outcome. Um, you know, obviously, it, fantastic if we could get that higher. But if you look at nationally, it's about 59% for students graduating within six years. And those are, that's for public institutions. But um, so, you know, our membership is showing a higher um, attainment than that. And, and I think that really just speaks to the commitment our members have to working with this, this population of students. And, you know, we're going to keep working with them on this because it's such a huge um, it's such a huge important indicator of everything and and we've seen the trend from our members to really you know gathering this information more and more and that's part of the challenge is you know gathering the information tracking the student and then being able to report back to us about this 
Well, and we're again, it's, you have to drive home the point that we're talking with underserved population to begin with. So to have these kinds of successes is really absolutely tremendous. And I, I think it goes back to the question um, about affordability. And, you know, when you talk about affordability with underserved communities, it's a whole different conversation, but it's very significantly rooted in where you started, which is the FAFSA. Make sure that those students are getting all the free aid they possibly can. And then, you know, the Pell Grants and the state grants and all the rest of it. Um, and then uh, it gives them an opportunity to complete. And uh, what it's when you told me that, I, I didn't actually connect the dot uh, previously, but as you were having that conversation, I thought, well, it's because you're talking about affordability on the front end, and you're unlike a lot of students, frankly, who go to these big fancy private schools with a thirty or forty thousand dollar gap, hoping that somebody's going to come with a big loan that the reality is they can't pay. You're actually doing your students a, a much better service by putting that right up front and saying, "You got to go get this money. Here's how you do it, and you're going to have a really great chance to succeed." What a right. what a wonderful story. Right, right. No, absolutely. It's it is a wonderful story, and you know one of the other indicators that we think is really important that we started um, looking at this year is you know we just mentioned the word gap, right? So you can get the financial aid, but if you have a gap in your funding um, and it's a significant gap, then there's going to be scrambling. That might mean that you don't end up on campus in September. Um, and so we started looking at if a student was having a financial aid gap of $10,000 or more or $10,000 or less. And so what we saw was, um, and this was also sort of a smaller sample size and we're you know encouraging more of our members to gather this information, but we were looking at it and 85% of the students had a gap less than $10,000. And so while you know, it's not zero, it's it's workable. You know, we can work with our members and they can work with their students and families to try to figure out how to close that size of a gap. And sometimes that is a monumental gap, certainly. But if you know what it is, then you can actually troubleshoot it. And so it's really important to have that information about the gap. Oh, absolutely. And the gap financing, obviously, is so critical. And again, $10,000 for lots of families, a big number for underserved families, it's just huge. But as you say, um, information is power, knowing that, having the resources uh, to try to maybe go appeal, get more financial aid, whatever it is. Um, but what, whatever it works for any particular family, obviously, is working across the cohort because you've had such tremendous uh, completion uh, rates. That's absolutely terrific. Yeah. Let me, let me just ask you this. Um, there's also this discussion uh, lots of times saying that, the, in particular, the dreamers, the underserved kids, they have that special um, sort of look in their eye where it's them, you know, and maybe their parents are along for the ride or maybe they're not. Is that, is that a misconception? Do you find that most parents within these communities are, are helpful or are the kids pretty much on their own? What, what, what? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great question. You know, I think um, I think they're helpful, you know, and I think that they want to be helpful. You know, they need information. You know, and you were just saying information is power. And I think that that is a huge piece of it. And I think a lot of the misconception of, oh, you know, maybe parents aren't trying to be so helpful is, is not accurate because they do want to be helpful. They just need to have the tools. You know, it's not maybe their first language or, you know, this is not their country and things were different in the country where of origin. So they don't understand how the system works. And so, you know, you might have a parent who's not speaking English and so you have to have materials translated. So they, they do want to be really helpful. And I think some of the best practices, you know, that we try to and, you know, our members are, you know, ahead of us on this, you know, they're out there doing the work. But 
you know, really working with families. There's a lot of discussion on parent engagement, family engagement, because, it, you know, the students can't do it on their own. And, and, you know, certainly we do see some students who are really taking the lead and, you know, and, and they're kind of, you know, the one who's motivated. But for the most part, parents are incredibly motivated. They want their students to succeed and they need the tools. And one of the things that MPA does, you know, while you know, we, we again are sort of the step removed, but we want to make sure that our members have that information. And, you know, we put a lot of stuff on our website, you know, we put a lot of information out there of, of groups that we think are reputable, good sources of, of information to help parents weed through it, you know, and the best thing which I love more than anything is if you have a parent who's gotten a student into a great academic enrichment sort of college prep track kind of a program and they have a relationship with the educator or the teacher or the counselor and they can get their questions answered that is so incredibly powerful and then the parents feel like they're involved and they have the tools that they need to help support their students and there's nothing better than that and that you know that is that is absolutely what we're here to try you know to help facilitate you know and that's so consistent I, I started by mentioning that I talked to Bob Hildreth I know you know Bob and the yeah. work that they're doing and, and, the, and he makes the same point you do which is that you know for those families if they can save even a thousand dollars over the course of, it's such a big thing and they're they're vested and they're invested in what's happening and they of course with what Bob's trying to do to, tries to leverage that and you're doing the same thing on the other side with the information so right. um, you know part of me wants to say um, when I look into the future that I think things are getting better uh, for families across the board and for underserved families. We talked about the DACA challenge that's recently come, but but just generally, what what's your view? Are, are, are we making progress in helping to make the dream of college a reality uh, for your member organizations and their families? You know, we absolutely are. You know, we are definitely seeing improvement in progress. You know, I always say that wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to exist? You know, I'd work myself out of a job, but that would be okay. <laughs> you know, we just, um, I don't think I'm out of a job just yet, but, you know, I think we are definitely, definitely making improvements. And, you know, just the fact that we're able to look at some of this data, you know, again, I know, you know, people want to hear the stories and we certainly tell those anecdotes as well, but, you know, people want to see the data and our data is showing that our members are doing a great job. They are improving um, outcomes for students. And, you know, this is, you know, we, we have a, a you know, a, a fairly small group of members, you know, relatively uh, compared to how many programs there are across the country, but this is happening all across the country, you know, and so we're seeing improvements in terms of students getting into college. And, you know, over the years, we've seen more of an emphasis on access um, into school, then it's not just enough to get them in school, you need to get them through school, and then you need to get them through school and onto a college um, a career path. And so we are seeing more movement and improvement in that area as well. Um, you know, the other piece, which I know we spoke about earlier, you know, there, there are always going to be outside challenges, you know, political challenges that go on, changing landscape, all of that is always going to happen. And, and you know what, we just, we just pull up our sleeves right now and we're ready to start, you know, working on this next challenge around DACA and continuing to support the students and the communities and the families. And that's, you know, that's all we can do is we can just, you know, continue to do this support. Um, but, you know, in general, I do think that, you know, at least, you know, with this side of, of, of around specific college and, and helping families and parents and students understand financial aid, I think we are seeing improvements for sure in that area. Well, Carino, on that hopeful, optimistic yes. note, I think we'll, we'll end. I, I do want to thank you so much uh, for sharing your experience, your insights with us in My College Corner today. Uh, thanks, Thank you so much. And for our listeners, this is Kareen Elliott, the Executive Director of the National Partnership for Educational Access. 
You can follow NPA's great work at educational-access.org. Uh, but most important, support their work, but also the work of the member organizations, those 350 grassroots organizations in your community. Uh, you'll be glad that you lent a hand to help a kid achieve their dream of college. Please share your thoughts with us at podcast at inviteeducation.com. Until next time, remember, saving a dollar today is better than borrowing one tomorrow.